Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you and good morning, everyone. Welcome to our guests here at the Heritage Foundation today, and thank you to everyone who is joining us online. My name is Jonathan Butcher, and I am the Will Skillman Fellow in Education here at the Heritage Foundation. So the new self-appointed purveyors of truth in American education have their own hashtag, hashtag disrupt texts. Gone are the classics. Shakespeare is replaced with white fragility. Even modern classics like To Kill a Mockingbird are dismissed by the disrupt text movement because Atticus didn't do enough. That's right, enough. There is a remarkable disclaimer at the bottom of the webpage on the Disrupt Text website that says that they want to clarify that they, quote, don't directly teach critical race theory, as if that is going to convince us after their discussions of how important it is to disrupt the legal system. This is one of the driving ideas behind critical race theory which was based on critical legal theory, a worldview whose aim is to take American law apart piece by piece or all at once. Why be so quick to offer a disclaimer that you don't teach critical race theory through disrupt texts unless you knew that the very ideas you're trying to destroy are ideas that actually unite us? These critical worldviews are, by the theorist's own admission, skeptical of the past, distrust the classical liberal ideas of the Enlightenment, rule of law, equity under the law, the very ideas on which our nation and our culture was built. Our country, perhaps more than any other, owes a tremendous debt to the past, both those who contributed to the enriching of the human mind as well as those who erred and from whose mistakes we can learn. Our very lives today are built on the shoulders of Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, London, the great minds that through the years, the ages of struggle, pushed and pulled mankind away from ignorance, with man's very nature always prone to rescinding back into darkness. But I digress about classical education, but just for a moment, and only a little. Our distinguished speakers today are going to talk about why it matters what we teach our children. Classic works of literature and history, works that have survived the test of time, and guide us with a sense of permanence, wisdom, experience, lessons from failure, successes. These are the ideas that hold a nation and a culture together. They help us chart a course for the future when we cannot see any farther than beyond the tip of our own noses. And that's where we are today. Uh, journalist Bill Moyers was once quoted as saying, we Americans seem to know everything about the last 24 hours, but very little of the past six, 60 centuries or the last 60 years. How true in our Twitter-obsessed day and age. Before introducing our distinguished panel today, the poem that I could not get out of my mind as I thought about this event is Shelley's Ozymandias. And this idea that you have these vast, uh, and trunkless legs of stone standing in the desert. This image of power that thought it was going to last forever. And yet, half sunk a shattered visage lies, 
whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That image of power, that visage, there's basically nothing left. So these edifices of power, that critical race theory, the critical theorists, the modern day rejection of classical ideas, that's, that's what will remain of these. They will be washed away because the classic ideas that come from the time-tested truths from history and literature that we're gonna to discuss today, that's what will last. They have stood the test of time and that's, these are the ideas that will be with us and these concepts of power structures, those are the ones that are going to wash away. So with that, I'm very pleased to introduce our panel today. And I'm going to start and do this a little out of order, just based on the way the name tags are, are set up here. So apologies if people have to shuffle behind the chairs as they come up to the, to the, uh, to the stage. But first, let me introduce Robert Bortens, CEO of Classical Conversations. It's a job that Robert was born to, literally, Dissatisfied with the education options that his mom found, Lee Bortons decided to develop her own curriculum with Robert, her oldest son, as her first pupil. After many um, professional experiences and uh, today a member of the board of directors of Homeschool Now USA and the academic board of the Classical Learning Test, um, Robert is also a member of the C12 group, the largest professional development network of Christian CEOs and executives. So Robert, Thank you for being here. Next, I'd like to introduce Soren Schwab. He is a passionate educator with a decade of experience in K-12 education. Born and raised in Germany, Soren moved to the US in the late 2000s to pursue his literature and theology studies. He earned a BA in English from Hillsdale College and an MED in curriculum and instruction from Colorado Christian. So Soren, welcome, thank you for being here. Mrs. Robin Berlou came to Veritas as the upper school principal and academic dean in 2014 after serving in a classical and Christian school in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania for 15 years. Mrs. Berlew's childhood in rural upstate New York laid the foundation for a love of the outdoors and the created world. She earned a bachelor's degree in biology at Houghton College and a master's degree in integrated curriculum and instruction from Covenant College. Right there on the top of the mountain, right? In Tennessee, yeah, that's right. Okay, and uh, Dr. Prather, I believe, is she with us? Yet? Okay, so Dr. Prather is on her way and will be with us in just a moment. So I'm going to read her bio and then we'll move down the line to her once we begin the discussion. But Dr. Prather's research focus is on building literacy with African-American students through engagement in the books of the canon and self-published her book, Living in the Constellation of the Canon, the lived experience of African-American students reading great books of literature. She has served as a teacher, supervisor for student teachers, director of education, and head of school. Currently, she teaches in the classics department at Howard University and is the founder of the Living Water School located in Southern Maryland. So with that, I think, Ms. Berlew, would you like to begin? We'll start with you. Would you like to start? I'll pass. You'll pass, all right. So Soren, do you wanna begin? Sure. All right, Soren, I'm gonna turn the podium, uh, turn the microphone over to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan, for uh, this introduction for being here. Um, you might be a little surprised that someone from a testing company is on this panel, um, right? Because we don't really think of, 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 of testing as 
renewal or something that, that excites people. Um, but I am a classical educator by trade. I went to Hillsdale and then taught for, for many years at a classical school. Um, and I was an administrator and I saw firsthand the impact that testing has on education. And I'm not gonna talk too much about testing because as my wife always reminds me, that there's one thing that's more boring than taking a standardized test, it's talking about one. <laughs> um, but I think what we have to, to remember, whether we like it or not, is that a lot that Jonathan discussed in his introductory remarks, the removal of things, right? And it's not just what we're infusing into the curriculum, it's actually what we've taken out. That has happened quite a while ago on some of the um, high stakes tests that, that we put our students in front of. Um, and it might not come as a surprise that, that these big high stakes testing companies, uh, whether it's College Board, ACT, uh, Pearson, um, are progressive in nature, right? They're secular progressive um, organizations. Um, and so when we're, when we're hearing things like teaching to the test, that's a reality. And so when we look at some of these assessments, um, what, what, what are we encouraging students to read? What are we encouraging students to study? It's not the great works of literature. It's not the natural sciences. It's modern, contemporary, non-fiction, uh, informational text, oftentimes heavily politically biased. Um, and so in, in 2015, our founder, Jeremy Tate, who was at that time at a, at a, at a Catholic school, he felt that tension. Um, and, and I remember uh, his telling me a story that uh, it, the, the Catholic school was run by, by the Dominican, Dominican nuns, and, and one of the nuns said, yeah, if it weren't for college board, we'd be doing a lot more philosophy and religion at this school, right? So there's, a, there's an immediate impact um, that, that a lot of our schools are facing. And so CLT, in a way, is, is both a, a driver of and a byproduct of this beautiful classical education movement that, that the panelists are gonna talk about today. Uh, we didn't start it, um, we just kind of jumped on board. Uh, and I think we saw this change that Jonathan mentioned over the last few decades of lowering the standards, right? Of not reading primary texts anymore, primary literature, historical documents, philosophical documents, the things that uh, we would say, uh, you know, makes a student well-rounded. Um, and so 2015 we started, 2016 uh, was our first testing administration. Uh, and so we've been doing it for about, for about six years. And it's just beautiful uh, to see um, the classical renewal movement kind of coming together because it's been kind of scattered uh, for a long time. And so uh, CLT has been in a privileged position in a way to be a convener of a lot of the different pockets of classical education, whether it's the classical homeschool, the classical Christian, we have a, a groundswell in, in a Catholic renewal movement. Uh, and then of course, um, the, the classical charter schools, I'm seeing Erica Donalds here in, in the audience. Um, and so we're trying to provide uh, a validation to this, this great education that these students are receiving, um, something where they don't have to compromise. And I think ultimately um, providing a new standard because um, we've been lowering for way, way too long. Um, so by way of, uh, of just a few introductory words, um, but Jonathan, I can. Thank you. To you yeah. So we're gonna take questions at the end and I know that we'll have some from our online audience as well, but if I can start with one, sure. Soren, I'll lead off with this. So if you're asked, and I'm sure you get the question, um, so how does your test compare to the SAT or the ACT? I mean, if you were to describe what distinguishes 
the classical learning mm -hmm. test from those. How would you say, how would you describe the differences between the two? Yeah, I think before I get into the practical, and, and I don't know if everyone in the audience uh, knows exactly what classical education is. And, and so if, if I may, I maybe try with, with a couple of definitions. And if you go on YouTube and you look at what is classical education, you find a lot of pretty lengthy YouTube videos, sometimes over 10 minutes, because it is kind of, it's hard to, to pin down. But um, I, I like to uh, uh, provide the one from the Searcy Institute. Classical education is the cultivation of virtue and wisdom by nourishing the soul on truth, goodness, and beauty by means of the seven liberal arts and the four sciences. Now, if you've been uh, publicly educated um, the last 20 years, or if you're at, a, at an education department right now at a public university, you've probably never heard of any of these terms, right? Wonder, joy, <laughs> right? We hear about um, global citizenship, we hear about uh, 21st century skills as if by the turn of the century now we, we, we just need different skills. Um, you know, we talk about college and career readiness a lot. We don't talk about virtue and wisdom and the true purpose of education, which is to form human beings, right? The end of a classical education is human flourishing. It's not just learning some skills and being employable. And so how, does, how can a test possibly, uh, you know, support that end, I think it starts with the content, right? If a student is told, hey, this is one of the most important tests you're ever going to take and you have to study for it, and all they're seeing are vacuum cleaner manuals and, and I don't know, articles about naked mole rats, that's not <laughs> inspiring. That's not forming them or shaping them. And so putting beautiful literature in front of them, as Matthew Arnold said, the best of what's been thought and said. Students should read that. They read it in class. Well, at least at these wonderful schools and homeschools, not at all schools, unfortunately. But they should also see it on tests, right? And so it should be humane. It should be inspiring. And most importantly, it should complement your education. It shouldn't compromise it, right? And so what are we seeing? Why, why does there seem such a disconnect between, I mean, we probably all have taken the SAT or the ACT. It was bad, right? And why was it so bad? Well, because you felt like you had to study for it. Well, why did you have to study for it? Because these tests are self-serving. They're not intended to assess really anything other than a few check boxes. Um, and so I think that the test, while it can drive what is being taught, and unfortunately in the case of College Board and ACT it is, and we see that, maybe we can talk about that later on, um, but the test should point back to the classroom, yes. to the beautiful things that the kids are reading and learning, so that it doesn't feel like this, this big compromise. Um, and lastly, and I'm trying not to make it political, um, but there is certainly an end goal with these big testing companies. And, and, and the goal is not to necessarily send kids to the University of Dallas or to Hillsdale College or to Grove City, right? It's serving the big, big public um, universities. So, so that's kind of um, uh, where I would say a test can at least help with that. These individuals are doing the, the great work in the classrooms. We're trying to validate all the great work they're doing. Thank you, and that was a great description. So Robert, I'm gonna turn it to you. You ready? Yeah, okay. so Classical Conversations was started in our family's basement in 1997. Uh, I was a freshman in high school, and it was uh, kind of the mother invention is, uh, I was gonna be homeschooled alone, and I was homeschooled up to that point, and we knew if we were gonna debate these great ideas that debating mom 24-7 was probably not gonna <laughs> be the best uh, for our relationship, and uh, she 
decided to invite families into our home that year and it went well and some other families heard about it and the next year uh, we did a second year of that and she gave kind of her 11 pieces of paper that were stapled together that was our curriculum for that first year uh, to another family and they started that and you know really just um, from that uh, the, we just kept growing and the interesting thing about my family is there's two of us boys and then there's a 12 year old 12 year gap and two more children that are also males and so when we graduated high school my two youngest brothers were getting into uh, first grade and my parents realized all the things that we didn't learn and um, part of that was because we didn't have a classical education and didn't understand what that was at the beginning and really just kind of explored that in my high school years and so uh, we started a K through six program and um, that was designed to give children the knowledge they needed to be successful as adults and I've have an industrial engineering degree and one of the things we say is garbage in and garbage out <laughs> and uh, if you put the best things in front of children when they're young you'll get some of the best things out of them as adults and uh, we hear um, you know you may kind of see the memes on Facebook or whatever and you see like the digression of math where they went from like studying Pythagorean's theorem to color in this box um, and uh, you know we see like here in modern education, you know, two plus two equals four, so how does that make you feel? Um, <laughs> versus uh, at classical conversations, we teach our kids um, the multiplication tables 15 to 15 as kindergarten and first graders, and we teach them the math laws. And so we approach uh, classical education from the tools of learning and giving students and families the tools they need to be successful in whatever the world gives them. And I think, you know, over the last two years, we've seen the world change so fast. So this idea of career readiness is just a joke because who knows what the careers are going to be uh, two or three years from now, much less 12 or 13 years from now. Um, that allegedly our uh, modern schools are trying to prepare kids for. They're not even going to exist. So classical education gives a student the tools to really prepare for uh, whatever the Lord and the world puts mm. in front of them. And so we've uh, seen an explosion. We now have roughly 130,000 students in over 50 countries. And um, I think we just graduated uh, somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 students this past school year. And really our um, high school program is really really growing so yeah, classical conversations is uh, classical education for homeschoolers mm. well Twitter has been telling me that 2 plus 2 is 5 so I've been <laughs> keeping my kids off of that so can you tell us how um, what have what has been the response from homeschoolers that have used used your curriculum and uh, how they've um, applied it with their children I mean how what's the feedback been from the families that have used it yeah, so our kind of differentiator in the homeschool marketplace is community. And so we create communities that uh, meet once a week uh, with the parents and the students. Sort of the, a co-op type, type of arrangement. Yeah, almost. like a co-op, but um, with the tutors trained in our pedagogy, and they go through a one-day training seminar during the summer as well as additional training during the school year as they prepare. And so um, our feedback from our families is it's not just giving their children a great education, but it's given the parents the education that they never received. So we're really redeeming two educations at once. And that's mm -hmm. always one of the things you hear from homes, people who are afraid to homeschool is like, I don't know all the things. It's like, well, no one knows all the things, but all you need to do is stay a couple minutes ahead of your student. Mm -hmm. And at Classical Conversations, 
um, by forming those communities, you know, if you're not strong in math or science or history or writing, you know, you have that community of learners who are doing the same thing you're doing at the same time you're doing it across the world, and so you can reach out to other people. And so, I mean, we've we hear all the time from our students as well as their families that they've they're receiving great education. Um, a great story to kind of, and it's not all these, not every graduate does this, but a graduate was in her English class, English 101, and they turned in their first papers, and she got an A, and you know the class wasn't doing so well. They turned in a second paper, you know she got a good grade, but the teacher in the front, uh, the professor goes, "I need everyone to, you know, come to my office and see me because these papers aren't up to snuff." And of course, the homeschool student that uses classical conversations is the first one to show up <laughs> in his office hours, and uh, he goes, "What are you doing here?" And she goes, "Well, you told all the students that we needed to be here." And he, he goes. Well, I didn't mean you. <laughs> and I uh, said, well, actually, if I give you an A in this class, will you just TA the rest of them, help me grade all these papers and help your students? So um, that, that's the type of education our students get is they, they're able to thrive um, wherever they go. That's terrific. So uh, one more uh, question for you. So have you heard from families? So that's an interesting question or story about from higher ed. Are there any programs in colleges that parents have reported back, oh, this classical, you know, this curriculum prepared my child especially for, you know, this or for this particular one? And the reason that I ask this, this one in particular is about Clemson because Clemson has the Lyceum program. And I was actually having lunch with um, uh, uh, Brad just the other day, the head of the program. Uh, so are there any others like that that you've heard from families that I think that our audience here and the online audience is, that's kind of what we're looking for, right? Like what is higher ed doing, if anything, right, to preserve the classics? Yeah, I mean, I went to Clemson, so, but I was probably not the reason they started that program. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, our students go all sorts of public schools, private schools, go straight into missions or entrepreneurship. Um, and so there's not, uh, I mean, Obviously, the, the CLT is a great way for our students to see what schools want our students, and we definitely have a lot of colleges that actively recruit our students, um, but like a specific program like Lyceum, I mean, we are seeing like SEU out of Florida is starting more classical education hmm. um, programs, like New St. Andrews in Idaho is really exploding in growth, and so... <laughs> Um, there's a number of colleges who are actively recruiting classical conversations students in effort to boost their diversity at their school as well as you know their alumni. Universities are just like any business. They want alumni who graduate, get good jobs, and give back, right? And classical educated students do all three of those things. Yeah, excellent. That's very helpful. Dr. Prather, thank you for joining us. I'm so, I know how difficult it is to make it across the district. So thank you. Thank you for being with us. I'd love to turn the microphone over to you if you're ready and say it. Please tell us a few words uh, about yourself and then about, you know, the, uh, our topic. Yes. Um, thank you all for your patience. I was at a job interview with John Hopkins that went a little long and we were discussing this and um, they're interviewing me because of my interest in classical education and it being for every child. And I kept saying, well, I have to go. <laughs> but um, um, so I, I got on this journey quite a few years ago, I guess in 2002, my mom and dad, uh, a black pastor and his wife, uh, we all live in PG County. Uh, our churches was our church was in DC. It moved to PG County, always serving the, the black community. And um, I was just graduating from Howard University, was very uh, aware, I want to say well, aware of my history and what needs to happen with how that's taught. And they decided to start a classical school, 
which conflicted with what I believed at the time. And we argued and we fussed and they didn't listen to me. And they started a classical school. They were trained by ACCS. We went to all, they went to all the conferences. They went to Rockbridge for all their training. Um, they were very passionate about Dorothy Sayers and the Lost Tools for Learning. And that was their background. And I was teaching in public school. And I knew that I had to get out when I had to teach a sex education course that went against my moral beliefs to fifth graders. And so not too long after that, I began to talk to them about wanting to leave public school. And my mom was, well, you can come help at our school. And at first I said, no. Uh, but then just I, my spirit was just so grieved by what I was seeing um, as it conflicted with my belief system that I came out of public school and said, well, I'm just going to teach music and drama. That's it. I'm not teaching classic literature. I'm not doing the whole classical education thing, but I'll be in charge of all your school productions and musicals, and I'll stay safe in my corner. That lasted all of two seconds. Um, and I had, and you know, a lot of people who are against classical education really have never in, been involved with it. They haven't read the literature. They haven't seen what it can do. They're just speaking based on what their political tribe may have said or their you know, community may have said. And, um, and so I was walking down the hallway and I saw a great books class being taught and, and it was a high school class and the kids weren't paying attention and the teacher was frustrated and she's a good teacher. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, this is just not relevant to our culture. Um, I don't know why this is the curriculum that was chosen. And even though I had my personal feelings, you know, no one else is allowed to disagree with my parents. <laughs> so of course I was very defensive of them even though I had my my feelings, and I said, well, let me help you see if I can help them engage. And part of my research at NYU, I had also just, by that time I had finished my master's in theater education at NYU, was how to use drama to help students engage with difficult literature. So I said, oh, let me lose some of my tools for the trade. I said, give me your books. And I always tell people this was a total setup by God, like he tricked me, because I had to read the literature and immediately after, I can't remember what we had to read for this lesson I was preparing. I just remember that immediately I realized I had been wrong. It wasn't a conversation, it wasn't anything, but that I read it and I was immediately exposed to the true, the good, the beautiful, the virtuous, and I was drawn in instantly. And my life changed instantly in that moment. And I became literally addicted to classical education. And I ended up taking over that great books class, taught it for six years. I was moving into my dissertation uh, where I was going to research the role of the arts in the classroom. And that's why University of Maryland invited me into their doctorate program. They knew that this, I was going to bring great you know, insight into theater arts in the classroom. And I decided I'm changing my research focus to the relevancy of classical education in the black community. And my life, you know, became very difficult at that point. My advisor decided not to work with me. I wandered around in my department for a really long time. People said, why would you do this? Your career is going down the toilet. But when you come to face to face with what's true, it's really hard to deny it. So I prayed and I continued to wait. Long story short, God provided the professors and support I needed to finish my dissertation and to graduate. And, and my dissertation is um, living in the constellation of the canon, um, the lived experiences of black students reading great books literature. 
And um, and it sat in a drawer for three years, and then CLT found me, and John uh, St. John's has always been supportive, and um, and then when I then I got married, had my own kids, and my son was starting kindergarten, and you know my parents' school was open for ten years, and my understanding was they would go, my children would go to that school, and I didn't quite put it all together because my parents' school closed, my son was born, it was time for him to start school. And there was nothing for him. I, you know, I looked at the local public schools. I was like, no way. Um, and then I looked at some other schools around me, and they just didn't share in this passion I had. And I began to pray and pray, and I felt God say, start a school. Um, and I said, well, I know what my dad and mom just went through to keep theirs open. It closed. I was a little bit hurt by that process, afraid of that process. And I told God, no for several days, and I kept saying, God, what should I do? And I kept hearing say, start a school. And finally I said, okay, God, I don't believe this is gonna work, but I'm gonna say yes, but you have to do it. And he was like, that's all I need. <laughs> and I said, honey, I'm gonna start a school. And he's like, what, I'm sorry, wait, what? Like, you know what just happened at your, your parents' school? And he said, well, I'll cut a deal with you. Um, he has an MBA, so he's all about the figures. If you can get 12 students by August 1st, uh, we'll know we have income for your rent and curriculum, and it'll be a little one-room schoolhouse with my few three little kids and a few families to pay my rent, and we'll be good to go. And I ended up with 30 kids. Wow. Total God, because my church was connected to the school my parents started, so no one in my church wanted to attend my school. It's, we can laugh about it now because a lot of them go to the school now, but uh, seven years ago, everybody thought I was crazy. But God brought strangers, just people who didn't know me, and I knew it was God, and they're still with me today. And the school is small. We have 34. When the virus came, we had 50. But we had to go down, and we're working our way back up, you know, having to go online. But it's strong, and it's still there, and um, they learn Latin. Um, I do the traditional approach as far as classical education. But then we have another component where the students are free to pursue interests, such as the arts um, and things like that, in addition to it. And we use um, Memorial Press, Classical Academic Press. Um, and it's really been doing really well. And, um, and it changes lives. And I'm not able to walk away from something that I know works. And I always say that classical education, I feel, gives me a very specific formula to repair the ruins. And in serving a predominantly black community, there's ruins, in, especially in the area that I'm in. And all I have to do is go to this beautiful blueprint in classical education and no matter where the student is, even if they're not on grade level, I can look at a student who may be 13 and say, you're still in the grammar phase. Like, that's very liberating for me. I don't know about anybody else. Because if I know, oh, you're on the grammar phase still because you didn't get some things, I know what curriculum to pick, what process to go through. And without fail, they become literate. Without fail, they grow. They change. Their mentality changes. And I still take them to the trivium, even, and then they eventually get on point. But it helps me serve my community. Um, and then finally, once I found out how classical education was the main way black people were educated coming out of slavery, it all makes sense to me. It gave them access to the literacy 
of our country so we could become equal participants in our democracy. And you can see that. It's not something I'm kind of saying, oh, I think this happened. I'm really into reading autobiographies. So when you read the autobiographies of Martin Luther King, Anna Julia Cooper, Frederick Douglass, and you know all the various liberators that we've had in our history, and all of the, from even John Lewis, like all of them, I've been even able to convince my parents, you had a classical education. <laughs> because they're in their 80s. And all the schools before desegregation were classical. All the HBCUs before Booker T. Washington became popular were classical. They started out educating freed people coming out of the Civil War, and they only used the classical approach. Like, when I think about that, but somehow we've gotten away from that. And the, the key, and, 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 and this is why I love working at Howard University, who sadly closed their classics department. I think they're trying to retain it in some level, but it doesn't have the official classics department, was that the founder of Howard University was named Oliver Howard. And he was a part of, um, Abraham Lincoln made him the director of something called the Freedmen's Bureau. And the Freedmen's Bureau had a lot of responsibilities, but one of the main things was setting up schools for the newly freed people after the Civil War. And he set Oliver Howard in charge of that. And Oliver Howard founded Howard University to have, an H, to have a classics department. And if you look at all of the schools that Oliver Howard had anything to do with, all of the HBCUs that Oliver Howard and the Freedmen's Bureau had anything to do with opening, they were all classical. There are others, like Hampton was also a part, but there's a series of schools that Oliver Howard contributed to opening, and they all use the classical approach. And so this is a part of our history. So I'm here to tell that story. My research is about telling that story. And, and, and the other part is that, in closing, is I'm trying to educate my students to, to, to go beyond just knowing their history and being proud of their history, but to, to, to love the story of humanity. That it's not just about having black pride. That's not what it's only about. We all should be proud of who God made us to be. There's nothing wrong with that. But we should be working towards harmony and connection, especially if you're Christian in the body of Christ, where there's no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We're all one in Christ. I find that classical education, because it is a shared heritage, is powerful for facilitating that. So not only do I teach black history, but I teach human history, I teach the foundational documents, I teach that this is your country, and these are what your ancestors did to contribute to this country, and how to invite everyone to this conversation, and to invite themselves to the conversation, the great conversation. And so I'm excited about this revelation that my parents had. And I told them that I'm gonna always, their names are Dolores, I mean Lorenzo and Dolores McKinney, and I sometimes drag them everywhere he knows uh, <laughs> because I want them to know that they were pioneers in this work and that this biblical perspective on using classical education as a way to bring racial healing and harmony is just so powerful to me. So that's my story.
That's wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Prather. And uh, with faith like yours, I have two or three projects you can help me with. Um, so let me ask if I can just for a moment about the Living Waters School. Sure. So I imagine that not all of your students are at the same grade level, right? You have different ages. So how do you approach the teaching of the classics to students at different age ranges? And right. how do you integrate you know, some of these big ideas to students at different in different ages. That's very interesting. So it's important that we stay small. That's one reason why I purposely stay small. Um, I'm not trying to be a big institution because of that. Um, the first thing we do is we put them in groups based on the trivium. And so no matter, so there's usually age ranges within a learning group. And according to that learning group, so for example, the Little Springs, which my daughter's graduating from this next week, but um, are grades K through two, sometimes three. Then there's the creeks, which are grades three, four through six. And then the rivers are grades seven, it's all a water theme. Uh, <laughs> then the rivers are grades seven through nine, which follows the logic, you know, so it was early grammar, grammar, logic would be the rivers, and then rhetoric is 10 through 12. And I try to make sure whatever they're learning connects to what the Tribune says they should be experiencing at that point. And sometimes you're going to have a student who they don't know they've been kept back. You know, they don't know that they're, they think they're on point because they have this range that they can kind of figure it out. But what I have found, too, to your point, is once a student enters the classical approach to education, it seems slow at first, and I always tell the parent, please just be patient. Like, give me a year or two years, and you're going to see something happen. Those who trust me, which is a lot of them, some of them don't, and that's okay. Um, as soon as they get those tools, they are like lightning. They immediately, they quickly, once they get through the, the learning the phonics or the grammar and where to put a period, <laughs> all of those things and the literacy and learn Latin and how it, it surrounds them. Once they latch on to that, usually after, depending on the student, but I'll say one to two years, they move very fast and are where they need to be. Um, also, um, we have a pretty good number of staff, and so the groupings are small. So when they're having a math lesson, there may be no more than, there's most likely no more than three students in that math lesson. So they get that one-on-one, -on -one, and all of us are on call. So the, the students have a way to contact us. Can you help me with this assignment? And we will come on Zoom or what have you and, and work with them. And we just um, got a building in Old Town Alexandria. Well, next year we'll be there two days a week where students can come in person to get personalized help and socialization and tutoring and things like that. Um, and then the other piece that we do is um, every Monday is seminar where we discuss a classic text. And because a lot of our students are coming from different places, um, Charlotte Mason does not believe that you should do the children's version as much, but it's better to take small chunks of the actual text that you discuss Socratically until they learn to read the whole text. And so, um, and we use touch tones for that. Um, and so every Monday, everyone is in a different group and they discuss a classic text in a small excerpt. And then when we feel like they've really learned that, they're given the whole text. They're given whole books to read. And then there's another discussion that goes around that. So, Excellent. That's great. Well, Mrs. Berlou, so tell us about Veritas. And tell us about, um, particularly, be interested to know about your mission statement and how you follow your mission statement and put it into practice. Sure. 
Veritas is in Richmond, Virginia. We're right in the city, in the north side, and we serve about 650 students this year. And um, our mission is to cultivate wisdom and virtue in our students through a classical education. Uh, we're very intentional about that and encouraging our teachers to make that not just about content. I think that's one of the things that in the 25 or so years I've been part of um, this recovery of classical mm -hmm. education is that our um, focus was initially a lot about content and then we realized, oh, we need to help our students love the right things. If they're going to become these flourishing human beings, they need to love the right things. And so our attention has, has maybe grown to include those parts of uh, pushing towards the mission by helping our students to love the things that are true and beautiful and good in their classes. And then also to um, begin to examine the ways in which progressive education has influenced even our practices. And I think this is where even CLT comes uh, into play. When you think about what are the aims of education, our students are, are going to be shaped by the end of what they're headed to. And so we want to be thinking about what are the practices in the classroom that will reflect these um, students as human beings and what we want them to be coming. So we're always in the process of examining our own, maybe peeling off the layers of our own progressive education, um, because for most of us, that's what we received. And um, probably even if we weren't in a public school, we still were receiving a progressive education um, until we became intentional about it. And so thinking about what are the ways in which both content, the shaping of affections, and then even our practices in our school communities affect this, the human beings that, that our students are becoming. Well, and so what, you said practices a few times, so what, what, are, what are those? I mean, can you elaborate a little bit on what? Sure, it could be something so uh, maybe uh, initially uh, trite as a bell starting and stopping a classroom. So, so most of us grew up in schools where the bell rang, and that's what dismissed us from class, rather than the human being, the teacher, in the front um, dismissing our class and ending mm -hmm. it. And the, th the same thing with beginning things. So we think a lot about how does class start how does class end? What's that interaction like between the teachers and the students? Is, this, is the teacher welcoming the student to their space as another human being? Or um, is the teacher just at the front shuffling papers until the bell rings? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things that initially when you're, you're um, working with a school, we may just uh, assume them without question mm -hmm. are things that we've come to believe we need to examine. So, and remind me again, did you say you're K through 8 or K through 12? We are 12? K through 12. Okay. So, I imagine, right, that parents are always thinking about, often, thinking about college and sure. what their kids are going to do next. Sure. So, when college counselors or recruiters come to campus or talk to you guys, what do they say? Either about what they're looking for or the students who you have sent off to higher ed. What, what, have the, what has the feedback been? The feedback's been very positive. Our students go off in, and thrive. And, and what we talk a lot about at Veritas is that we need to be thinking about what kinds of people these students will be when they're 40, 50, 60, 80 years old. Will they be the kind of 80-year-olds who will look back at a, wife, a life well-lived? Um, if so, 
then the intermediate things will take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. So college is a poor um, ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. It's a fine intermediate goal on the way to a, a life well lived. Mm -hmm. And so when we aim at those bigger goals, you, you get the side. Sure. I mean, college will matter depending on what you do with it That's or what's right. there. That's right. Yeah. That's well, right. very good. Well, we have, uh, I'm going to take some privilege here and we'll take some questions for a few minutes and go just a little bit over. But I'd love some questions from the audience. And I know that those online are sending their questions to uh, someone that we have down front, too. So do we have uh, any questions? Yes, we have one here in the front. Um, I'm wondering if, Robert, if you can speak a little bit to the rise in um, classical homeschooling in a response to COVID. I joined a classical conversations community right at the time of the rise of COVID-19, and our community was filled with new families who had never homeschooled before. And in a lot of ways, COVID sort of unleashed the um, the potential for families to feel more engaged in their child's education, and I saw that firsthand in our own community. So I'd love to hear kind of what are the trends looking like kind of pre-COVID versus post-COVID, the rise of homeschooling, and then also would love to hear about the rise of homeschooling in the African-American community, if we can kind of tie those two things together. Yeah, so obviously there's people who are educating their children at home and using the public school system, and then there's the people homeschooling. And, you know, we saw our leads double, triple, really overnight. We're going from three or 400 leads a week in our online website to uh, 1,500. And so I think parents, one, started realizing what their children were being taught or more maybe what they weren't being taught and knowing that wasn't what they wanted for their children. And they don't necessarily know what classical education is when they come to us, but they've maybe read some Dorothy Sayers or, you know, read um, Repairing the Ruins um, or reading one of these books. And they say, that sounds like it's something that would be interesting to me. And so one of the things that we do at Classical Conversations is offer a one-day parent practicum during the summer. So when you join our program, most places it's free. Sometimes, you know, charge a little money to cover, like, rental of a church or something like that. Um, but it's a one-day kind of boot camp for classical education where we go over some of the tools of learning, talk about what the trivium means. And so that's kind of how, how we're meeting people. And you know, we continue to have waiting lists in uh, a majority of our communities, and we're always looking for leaders to step up and start new communities. So, um, We saw a rise, and I, I'm traditionally not a homeschooler, so I want to be upfront about that. But what I want to say is what I've noticed is that we saw a rise in homeschooling with the virus, and when parents began to see what their kids were learning they realized that they needed to start homeschooling more. Before the virus, there was um, they, there was a there was there was a group of, of, of black families that recognized something was missing from the curriculum. And and I don't want to sound like I'm bashing public schools because I I know they're necessary. There are students that will go to them, and I'd love to see them have a classical education. Honestly, mm -hmm. that's why I love working with the charter schools. And I'm trying to see how I can enter into the class, uh, public schools as well. But with with homeschoolers, there was a couple of things that they saw even before the virus was just a lack of learning black history, a lack of learning their history and their contributions to America. That was very frustrating. The other piece was there was just um, 
I think you mentioned it. Just uh, what? How does two plus two make you feel? Like yeah. those kinds of questions. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't stop laughing when you said it. But I, I, um, there was a frustration about wanting more content-rich education, um, and so you began to see um, homeschool groups uh, pop up that number one taught a lot more Black history, were more Afrocentric, and then you also began to see just um, a lot of them flock to classical conversations. Like one of my friends, Angel Parham's kids mm -hmm. grew up in classical conversations, and she speaks very highly of it as well. And so there was that. Then the virus came, and those families that were trusting the public school, you know, they were going to work, dropping their kids off, and thinking, this is the education my, my child is getting. Well, with the virus, everybody was home. Everyone was working from home. And so you have a mom or a dad or both doing their work for work and then also seeing what their children are learning and what's happening in the classroom. Teachers not showing up. You know, I've had students who like came to me because their teacher didn't show up to school for a whole semester. Um, and so, and then the content that they were getting. So, and then they began to see, oh wait, I can, if I can figure a way to keep working from home or figure a way to make this work, I'm going to keep home. I'm not sending my child back to that classroom. Um, even with children coming home, they began to hear about some of the trauma children were going through, being in the large class sizes, the bullying, and, and so on and so forth. So there became this rise of uh, black families homeschooling in that way. And so one thing that has drawn black families to my school is that we've decided to stay online. We, did, we had a building for the first six years or five and a half years, the virus came. We went online just to get through the virus, but began to recruit families all throughout the United States who now are figuring out, I'm gonna get grandma to babysit. Um, if we can keep doing your online program, then we're just gonna stay home. When, as one mother says, I feel like I can homeschool my child, but you're helping me. So they are, you know, we, they're given the assignments, they're given a book kit with all the things they need for their curriculum. Our teachers come online every day to teach various content. Um, but the parents are also greatly, greatly partnered with us in that process. So as more things and resources come up that help families, that may not feel like they can teach because of maybe the educa education they had or just they don't feel like they'd be a good teacher, the more resource, resources that come up, they begin to feel more empowered to take education in their own hands. That's a terrific answer. So time has gotten away from us. I would love to take one question from our online audience, though. Do we have one that we can take from? Uh... So one question that I have is, what are the best books or articles available for parents to understand the scope and benefits of a classical education for children, adolescents, and college-age kids? Robin, Ooh, that's a big one. Who wants to take that one? <laughs> well, I like, I like our book, Classical <laughs> Christian Education Made Approachable. Then we have the core, the question, and the conversation. So those are four books that we offer at classicalconversationsbooks.com, but there are many others that are great. <laughs> I would recommend The Liberal Arts Tradition by Robbie Jane and Kevin Clark. I would recommend a book that just came, that's coming out next month by Angel Parham and myself called uh, The Black Intellectual Tradition. I would also recommend my book, The Living in the Constellation of the Canon, only because it gives um, strategies for how to bring it to all students. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one thing I'm passionate, is that every student has access to this type of education. That's terrific. Well, thank you to everyone who joined us today. Please join me in thanking our panel for being here this morning.